Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Yeah, so today our guest is Scott Tannenbaum, and we're going to talk all about teams. We're going to talk about the seven drivers of team effectiveness and implications for people, leaders, and organizations. That's right. We are just so thrilled to have Scott Tannenbaum here with us on the Indigo podcast. And let me properly introduce Scott. So Scott Tannenbaum has worked over 25 years with a variety of companies providing evidence-based advice and conducting highly cited research on teams, more than 18,000 citations as of recently. Uh, And he's done this really across a wide variety, as I mentioned, uh, of settings and challenges. As the president of the Group for Organizational Effectiveness, he has advised hundreds of organizations globally, including more than 75 Fortune and Global 1000 companies across every major business sector. He's also supported teams that work on oil rigs, parachute into fires, perform surgery, dive under sea, engage in combat, treat cancer, play rugby, and prepare for future space missions. He was named a fellow of the Association for Psychological Science and of the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology, who also honored him with their Distinguished Professional Contributions Award. His latest book and the subject of today's conversation is Teams That Work, which was recently published by Oxford University Press. It debuted as the number one new release in organizational psychology. So, Scott, just a formal welcome to the Indigo podcast. Thanks for the invitation. Great to be here. Awesome. Yes! This yes, so then I just say, yes, <laughs> Scott Tannenbaum is in the house. Yes. <laughs> well said, Chris. And, you know, before we started this, Chris and I were like, we, you know, we, so we, we've been reading your book, Scott, and, uh, you know, we, we started talking to each other this morning about kind of what we were thinking about it. And and we both were like, yes, finally a book about teams that is evidence-based and accessible. It's just that, and that's just something that I think is really needed in our, uh, in the book marketplace but certainly in organizations everywhere. Yeah, there's no fluffy filler here, guys. You know, sometimes you get a, I mean, it's not even a long book, two, 300 pages, but could have been an HBR article and that was it. No, this is money, every chapter by chapter. And this is the exact kind of stuff we look for in books that we use with clients or recommend heartily to other organizations and people is this is all evidence-based stuff. That's right. There's no like, oh, maybe this is a good idea or this just is, oh, it's just an emotional puff piece that'll make you feel good, but not change anything in your life. (laughs) This is hard hitting, you know, beef and potatoes, guys. That's right. So, Scott, why don't you just start us off by telling us a little bit about why did you write this book? You know, there are hundreds, thousands of books about teams. Uh, Why? Yeah, so I'd say for the last 30 years or so. Uh, Eduardo Salas, Ed's, Ed's my co-author, and he's the uh, chair of psychology at Rice University. You know, we've been working with all sorts of teams. You mentioned, you know, a bunch of them. Um, and, you know, they had been getting advice, often not particularly helpful advice. And at the same time we were working with them, we started doing research, you know, and the research started becoming clearer and clearer. I think one of the really, you know, neat things we noticed is that globally there's this community of team researchers. And all of a sudden we reached a point where we looked at this body of research and thought about our practice and said, you know, we're finally at a point where we can provide some evidence-based advice. You know, we got excited about that. And and we started giving advice, you know, based on that in our practice. And we saw improvements in the teams we worked with. We started giving talks, you know, at uh, associations and at corporations. And uh, every time we were finished, they would say, so do you have a book? (laughs) Have you written this down? And uh, for several years, Ed and I kind of waffled about it. And we finally said, I think the time is right. And that's what led us to to put the pen to paper. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. And uh, you know, I guess you know, one thing that you do when you go through the process of putting together a you know a book and a book proposal is trying to identify how it's different from other stuff that's out there. Um, what was kind of the the gap that you saw that you think thought you know we can really fill this this particular area? Yeah, so you know, a lot of the writing is done by let's say I'll call them gurus, right? Um, so it's all experiential based. You know, they'll say things like, well, you know, I was in combat and I learned this or, um, you know, in my experience, I saw these things. And some of what they suggested is great. Right. Some of it maybe was just innocuous. 
And some of it was just downright wrong, right? So there was this gap in terms of this experience-based approach. And then there were, you know, in academic textbooks and journals, there's some really nice things being written, but they're inaccessible, right? So the niche that we saw was it's, it's time to take some of that hidden research that actually is quite good, but inaccessible and make it available in some ways to kind of supplement or maybe to counter in some cases the, um, you know, experiential books that were out there. You know, I think there's just a real famine for this kind of writing. You know, people run into these problems in their day to day. I mean, who is not or has not ever been on a team? You know, Robinson Crusoe, I guess, you know, somebody, right? That somebody else mail in an angry letter and be like, Robinson Crusoe was not on a team, but he did have his man Friday, right? Or whatever. Anyway, even Tom Hanks had a soccer ball. I yeah, mean, that's, that's right. right. You had Wilson. Wilson. <laughs> so point. we run into these problems every day. You know, the family as a team, our neighborhood teams, the, the sporting events, the places where we work, and we've all run into problems with this. And rather than just going, huh, I guess that's just life, you know, Scott, you you put something as a way forward. And, and the reason why we can be deceived, I think, by gurus and people that, you know, really shouldn't be talking on a lot of this stuff because they, they're just making up stuff that sounds nice that isn't helpful is because there's such a famine in our lives of, of needing solutions to these problems. Yeah. And, and everybody has team experiences, like you mentioned. You know, and less than 25% of people think that their own teams are performing very effectively. So at the same time that we've got this growth and proliferation of all sorts of teams at work, outside of work, we also know that a lot of people are having bad team experiences. And it sucks to be on a bad team. <laughs> you know, we've all had that experience. You just don't want to be on another team when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing that I recall from uh, the book was you, know, you talked about how our prior experiences on teams can influence how we may perceive teams in general and how we may participate in teams in the future. And, you know, going back to the uh, the, uh, the team project. Right. So I teach MBA students a lot. And, uh, you know, I, I sometimes joke with them saying that, you know, Okay, we're going to do it. Here's a group project. And, you know, um, you know, maybe you want to have these people be the pallbearers at your funeral so they can let you down one last time. Right. <laughs> um, and so and they all get it. They all laugh. Right. Because we all been on those teams where there's a lot of social loafing and just issues that come to play. Um, but I guess one place maybe we should start here is tell us a little bit about how the science, how you and Eduardo, when you were writing this book, how, how do you define a team and how do you think about this thing that we call team effectiveness? Yeah. So, um, you know, the academic literature tends to define teams very rigidly, right? People are in roles, define borders, et cetera. But, you know, when we look at the teams we're working with, that's not always the case. I mean, sometimes in organizational settings, it's a bit more amorphous, right? There's this flow around it. So for us, you know, it's, it's, it's two or more people that have some shared goal or priorities. It doesn't mean they're necessarily all aligned, but some shared goal or priorities and, and some degree of interdependence that we can't simply perform independently and expect to be successful. So you know, a group of people that are working in the same office space are not necessarily a team, right? Um, but the border is not always going to be the case that it's like a football team where you can say, I'm the quarterback, you're the wide receiver. That's not how teams are. It's messier than that now. And for us, you know, a highly effective team is one, obviously, that delivers results over time. I think that's pretty straightforward, right? But if what we do in order to be able to get those results in the short term is we burn out our team, Right. So we're not we don't have kind of the vibrancy that we need to go forward. If we're not able to be able to bounce back from challenges and show resilience. It's not a great team right? because, you know, we can get a team to kind of do the overnighter once. But, you know, over a period of time, that team is going to struggle. So for us, it's it's ongoing performance, it's resilience and it's vitality. Awesome. And, you know, it's been the talk for many years now, I think, in kind of the the popular and to some extent the scholarly conversation around um, organizational life that, you know, teams are becoming more common, collaborative work is becoming more common. And it seems like, you know, that gives a little bit more, even more of an increased importance, perhaps, to this, this study of teams and teamwork. Um, and, and there's still a lot of improvement, as you mentioned, that, that needs to happen. 
Yeah, so there's there's plenty of data that shows that it's very difficult to be an individual contributor these days, right? To expect that you're going to be able to go through your career as a lone wolf, just leave me the heck alone and I will get things done. Some people have that as a preference, but I like to tell them, unfortunately, that's not the world we're living in. You know, so even for them, they've got to learn how to be able to operate in, in more of a team setting. I mean, one of the, the myths that we see, though, is that once people start, once leaders start recognizing, you know, the value of teams, they want to put a team on everything, right? They want to form a committee. They want to put a task force together. They want to. And I like to tell them, you know, it, when you form teams for the wrong reasons, when you form a team for a piece of work that's better done by an individual or maybe a couple of people, folks are going to have a bad experience. You're not going to get the results. And then what happens is they start believing that, that teams aren't very effective. And so the next time you ask them, they're like, ah, eh, you can pass on me. Why don't you ask Joe to be on the team in, instead? So we want leaders to be thoughtful about when they form teams. And when they form them for the right reasons, the evidence shows that you, know, that you get great performance from them. Yeah, share that statistic again about how many people think teams are good. <laughs> yeah, so, so interest, this is Leanne Davey uh, uh, shared data that 90% of people view teams as critical to the success of their organizations and less than 25% believe their own team is highly effective, right? So everyone knows they're important, but just my team's not doing so great. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, and to, for that statistic to persist, it had to be like, man, I just keep getting the bummest lottery tickets every single time. Now, it doesn't matter what organization I go to, <laughs> I get on the numbskull team, the squad of jack wagons. <laughs> yeah, and, and you have a couple of those experiences and you don't want to be on a team again, right? And it starts in school. Ben, you alluded to this earlier, you know, we get put on a team in school and I've got someone on my team that's really just loafing along. And if we get a bad grade, I'm thinking, man, I can't believe that guy dragged us down. And if we get a good grade, I think, wow, that's unfair that he got a good grade and I didn't. Right? <laughs> and so right. we know a lot of students, and you know this from the classroom, you know, a lot of students don't want to be on team assignments for, the, for those reasons. But the reality is they're going to be on teams for the rest of their career. So if we don't start teaching them in business school, engineering school, medical school, we're providing some advice to, to medical schools now to learn how to work in a team, be a good team member and a good team leader early in their career, you know, they're going to have not be equipped when they hit the workforce. Yeah, no, yeah. I think that's an excellent point. And, and you've distilled a systematic way to think about it. Most people think, well, and you talk about some of these myths and we'll get to those in a minute, but it's, okay, don't be a jerk. Okay, I'm a good team member. Um, hmm. Maybe we can recruit a good leader. Okay, I mean, we have these kinds of things, but you're like, well, what does a good team member actually look like in the day-to-day? -day? What would make a good team leader? Should we get one of these powerful sociopaths that, you know, are super popular in the business press and slaughter everybody on their team? Well, I don't know if that's it, right? There needs to be a disciplined step-by-step -step kind of way of thinking about it. And, and that's something that you provide here. Yeah, and the example of that, that leader, you know, the scorched earth leader, there's an example of someone who might get you to the first deadline, right? But cannot, that team cannot sustain performance, right? So, you know, what works for a very short period of time and, and might be okay, at some point will burn out the team and you're not going to get uh, sustained results. Yeah, exactly. You know, and uh, one interesting other point that you mentioned in the book, I, I think is very, that's very important, kind of going back to this idea of um, how prevalent teams are and how teams are so important in our organizations is that a lot of times when we succeed individually, um, if we really think about it, there's probably a team element there that contributed to that success. So you give the example of when the Red Sox were playing the Phillies in uh, September of 2015 and the center fielder, Mookie Betts, he uh, had his amazing catch, right? And a lot of people were like, wow, amazing catch, great skills, et cetera. But then you break it down into all these different ways in which, yeah, well, you know, somebody was actually telling him how far away from the, the, the fence he was so that he, he, he could, uh, you know, judge when he was going to jump and all these types of things that went on team-wise and even culturally there. So I just think it really, again, highlights the, the complex nature of this and how teams are such a, an important part of our organizations. Now, you didn't bring that up because as a Red Sox fan, I'm disappointed that Mookie Benz went to the Dodgers and is playing in the World Series now, right? That's not why you, you told that story. <laughs> purely, purely because it was in the book. <laughs> yeah. Well, well I, what I like to uh, do is I, I'll show that clip of that play in corporate settings. Yeah. 
And the aha is you know, kind of this hidden uh, teamwork factor that contributes to individual success. And when I, I say, if you reflect on individual successes in organizational settings, because there's so much interdependency, almost always there's someone that was doing something that enabled that to happen. Even if it was simply taking care of work that that person normally did, so they were freed up to, to kind of really tackle this other problem in some ways. So it's that hidden teamwork piece that I think shows up in that story. Yeah, yeah. You know, another myth that you talk about is how, um, oh gosh, I got to focus on this teamwork thing and make my teams better. This is just a distraction from actually getting stuff done. <laughs> I've yeah. definitely heard that. I mean, one. I've had clients use those exact words with me. You know, we don't have time for teamwork. I have a business to run here, you know? <laughs> And I would say, you know, in their defense, and I'm thinking about one particular example, you know, in this leader's defense, he thought that teamwork was, um, let's go to the pub. Um, let's celebrate, you know, uh, Joe's birthday, right? And if you do think about teamwork that way, I understand it can be, you know, perceived as a distraction. But if you think about teamwork as the way work gets done, right, then the data is really clear. And Jeff Lapine and his colleagues did a meta-analysis you know, teams that demonstrate better teamwork outperform others by about 20 to 25 percent, right? But if the mindset is it's really this kind of other thing than from the way work gets done, I understand why people consider it to be a distraction, but that truly is a myth, right? It's really about fundamental work being being accomplished collaboratively. Sure, sure. So um, you know, maybe we now we, we move a little bit and talk a little bit about the science of teams. So, you know, in the book, which again, go out there and buy it. Don't be a jack wagon Buy it by the book. Um, you, you set this great framework about all about teams and then talking about the science of teams and some of the things that really matter. And you distill it down into these seven different drivers. So, you know, maybe we could talk about some of those drivers in, uh, you know, just kind of a, a little quick guide, perhaps to, uh, to some of those. Yeah. So we uh, we like to refer to them as the seven C's. So, you know, capability, cooperation, coordination, communication, cognition, conditions and coaching. And, and if you look at them in terms of the kind of the buckets, you know, capability is, you know, do we do we have the, the knowledge, the skills, the attributes on this team, those kind of stable traits that are needed to be successful? Um, I, if you don't have that, you're not going to be successful. I, sometimes people think they could team away huge talent gaps. And the reality is that only happens in the movies, right? The bad news bears somehow manage to win. <laughs> but if, if I'm on a marketing team and we really need someone with international marketing expertise and no one on our team has that and I don't bridge that gap, we can't team it away. You know, we can't. Our, our coordination isn't going to, going to make up for that. So capability is one. You know, cooperation is about mindset. So things like trust and psychological safety and collective efficacy, all those things, it's mostly about how people think about their team. Really, really important. And then coordination is the classic behaviors. It's often what you think about when you think about teamwork. Are we backing up one another? Are we handling conflict well? Um, communication, you know, that's about information exchange. And, and I will tell you that more often than not, when people come to us with a problem, they initially articulate it as a communication problem, even though very often that's just the symptom of something else that's going on, right? But communication both within the team and even outside the team, like a, from a boundary spanning perspective. I, you know, one of the things from the book on the communication that I loved, it says communication doesn't mean just do it more often. You know, you just, yeah. you got to have the proper cadence, but it's got to be good content there. Yeah, again, you know, if you think about these leaders that step forward and say, Scott, um, you know, we have a communication problem on the team. So I'm telling them they need to communicate with each other more. We're holding more meetings. I'm asking them to do uh, emails to each other to keep each other informed. There's an example of trying to tackle a communication problem by increasing quantity. And again, the research is very clear about this. It's about quality. It's not about quantity. In fact, high-performing teams often communicate less than low-performing teams, hmm. right? And they can because they have a shared mental model, which is about co cognitions. But simply telling your team, we need to talk more, isn't the answer. In fact, you know, what the research shows here is that it's about sharing unique information, right? Information that other people don't have. It's not just chatter, right? And it's about closed-loop communication that is, is in a way of ensuring that we, we understand each other, right? So sometimes in this, in this effort to try and get people to communicate more, you get a lot of noise in the system. 
And that's not what we're trying to accomplish here. We're trying to make sure that unique information is, is being shared. Yeah. So, so, you know, one thing you mentioned is this idea of being on the same page or having similar mental models. And, uh, you know, this kind of leads us into that, that next piece there, the next C, a cognition and having this shared understanding uh, across the team members. Um, can you, if you could unpack that a little bit, what does it mean to have a, a shared mental model? Yeah, so if, if you were on a team, you and Chris and three other folks are on a team together, and I were to individually talk to you, and I would ask you questions like, so, um, so, so what's your team trying to accomplish right now? You know, what are the biggest priorities? Um, who's responsible for task A? Um, if a technical problem occurs during a podcast, right, <laughs> what, are, what are we supposed to do about that? Right? Those would be examples. If people on your team gave me the same answer, I would say your team has a strong shared mental model. And one of the ones that's really important is about roles, because we know very clearly that when there's um, role conflict, role ambiguity, it, it creates problems on the team. So do we have a shared understanding about who is responsible you know, for what? Do we have a shared understanding about what's really important these days? I mean, That's even the idea question. of role is a mental model. It is. Hey, you know, HR handles this, oh, but finance is its own thing. Oh, well, in our small organization, finance actually reports up through HR. Okay. So you're using the heuristic of a different mental model to get to a shared mental model space. You know, that language matters, but it has different contexts, right? And just yeah. even going through that process. I mean, Ben and I do this all the time with clients of like, uh, what? how do you guys think about the way you do work? What is the language you're using? Hey, do you know that this guy has a different meaning for that word? Like scrum team, agile, yeah. you know, these kinds of newer paradigms for human organizing and project management. It's an ever-expanding universe. And having taking time to get on the, what do they say, the same sheet of music is time super well spent because otherwise you're just talking past each other. You know, one of the, the cognitive biases that we see a lot is something I, I call uh, everybody knows, right? So because I know this, I assume that you as my team members know this as well. Mm -hmm. So I don't articulate it. And because I don't articulate it, we end up over time having different shared mental models. Right. And then when something comes up, it either the ball gets dropped or we engage in a conflict because we had a different, different understanding about it to someone. Now, the other thing, Chris, that you, you mentioned earlier in terms of roles is it is a construct, right? It is kind of a mental thing. And how do we think about our roles, et cetera? And um, when we have ambiguity, it creates problems. So sometimes what I see, though, is team members then go the complete opposite way. And they're like, we have to have everything mapped out. We need to know all the details. We need to know who's responsible for these you know, minute things. And it ends up with this very rigid definition of roles. And so what I like to, to, to tell them is there's a difference between, between role clarity and role rigidity. Mm. In fact, we could collectively agree that any one of the three of us could step in and take care of something. As long as we have a common understanding about that, that there's flexibility there, that's great, right? So it's not that everything has to be rigid. It's just that we have to be, use the term same sheet of music. We have to be on the same page, right? The same sheet of music. Yeah, these, these mental models. And when you, so when you say stuff like that, I'm saying, what's going on in the culture here that somebody needs such a rigid definition? Is there punishment for stepping outside? You know, it starts opening up. Maybe there's a broader organizational mental model or cognition that needs to be explored on the a spectrum of healthiness here. Um, ben and I call it the Shawshank Redemption effect. We've been institutionalized, right? <laughs> and, and it has the same thing to do with onboarding. When we bring new people into our organization, they come with a mental lineage of all the teams they've ever been on, all the organizations, the good, the bad, the ugly, as far as leadership. And they're bringing those mental models and briefcases to their job site, right? Hi, guys. Yeah. Here I am. Here's my briefcases full of mental models and stuff. <laughs> you can alleviate a lot of that by spending time on the onboarding and having a bit of a disciplined process of saying, hey, let's talk about our mental models around here. 
And heck, maybe you've got something you can teach us about mental models where you're from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think as humans, we arrive where we are honestly. We could be completely wrong, right? But it's based on our past experiences. You know, we, we bring those with us. Um, and, and if I'm bringing kind of a different historical background, you know, it may be irrational in this current environment. I like to say, when I see someone who is acting irrationally, I ask the question, what would make it rational from their perspective? Because we humans don't do things irrationally on purpose. So why is that? So why, back to your point earlier, why is it that this leader is trying to handle all this by having tremendous rigidity, right? Well, it may be that that's the way things went in their prior organization. They got punished for, for allowing any ambiguity, you know? It may be that they lack the skills to lead. And so there's a discomfort that they have in being able to handle some of the flexibility. So their solution is, you know, it's like raising kids, you know, let's make sure that everything is sketched out for the kids exactly because I'm not comfortable kind of, uh, you know, leading my kids in some ways around this. So they come by it honestly. It's just dysfunctional, right? So this is where the education piece comes into play. And this is also where it's critical. You talked about onboarding, right? It's critical to start at the beginning with working to, to, to build shared mental models. But also it's something they change, you know, conditions change. So the starting point is onboarding or when the team is formed, but then they have to pay attention to this on an ongoing basis. It's not like we can announce it once. Here's the rules of engagement, right? In the military, they establish rules of engagement, but as the combat situation changes, you know, there's some adjustments that have to be made as well. And if you don't make adjustments, you're operating with outdated rules of engagement. Yeah, it's like a therapy model. You know, everybody who's been to a therapy as an adult will have a therapist probably say, you know, that was probably made sense when you were 14, but you're a grown person now. (laughs) Maybe you need some different tools. (laughs) But again, if I don't have the tools to cope, then I I fall back on kind of these other things as a leader. If I'm not aware of what I need to do, maybe build shared mental models and, and deal with flexible roles, but having clarity about it, then my default is to let's just button this down. And, and let me mandate and let me tell the team what to do. And, and we know from a research perspective, that doesn't work well. But again, it's a default if you don't know what to do better. Right, right. You know, so you just brought up, uh, you know, leaders and leadership a little bit. And that's uh, another kind of piece here in terms of these drivers of team effectiveness. You know, you label it in the book, you call it coaching and you talk about leadership behaviors. And what I really like here is that you say it's not just, you know, the leader, quote unquote, who needs to do these things. It's much more of a... Uh, you know, viewing leadership as, you know, as I like to define it more as a social process of influence, where it really can be something that that various people at different times are exhibiting these behaviors. I think that's a really helpful way to think about leadership in a team environment. Yeah, I mean, if you accept the premise that um, in today's work, leaders can't see everything. I mean, First of all, now because people are working from home, yeah. but even before that, right? <laughs> they want to see, see everything spying exactly. on the zooms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we got to be careful about seeing everything in the current environment. Oh my gosh! <laughs> but leaders can't see leaders can't see everything. Um, there's greater spans of control, which means they have more people reporting to them. You know, we're dealing in more volatile, complex, changing environments, and so it, it's insufficient, right, to expect that the leader can see and do everything. Therefore, we need some other people on the team who at times will step up. And it's not a formal, we're not talking about a formal, let's appoint a second leader. It's just, you know, everybody on the team can fulfill some leadership functions. And and that includes things like, you know, holding each other accountable. And if you accept the sports analogy for a second, the best teams, the locker rooms have players that are holding each other accountable. Um, You know, having more seasoned people who are providing coaching and advice and getting coaching from a peer is different than getting coached from your boss who may be judging you and evaluating you. So it's really important in a team setting that there be times in which people step up and they demonstrate leadership behaviors, even though they're not necessarily a leader. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I was thinking about soccer. I, I, I can't remember where the study was done, but everybody said, OK, well, that, you know, there's a tend to be a captain of the team. But then they did a surveys of who was the real leader on that team. And it would inevitably emerge that maybe some third string player who might as well almost be a water boy ended up having so much referential power and influence and leadership within 
in that place that, that ultimately for the team, because despite the positional authority, right, that person was absolutely the leader of what was going on. Yeah. And it, and it's uh, it's not necessarily the most talented person on the team, right? It's not like the star player should always get the C on their jersey. And that's kind of specific to sports. But there's these kind of hidden C's that exist in corporate settings, right? Like we kind of know over time who the captain of our team is, who re- who's representing us in some ways. And we expect the leader to do that. And they, sh- they, they should. But in addition to that, there are people who kind of informally you know, fill that role. And as you said, Chris, you know, if we interview people on the team, they could probably tell you, uh, well, actually, you know, Jane is just, she's kind of the glue that keeps things together here. And if any of us sort of, you know, fall out of line, she's going to be the first person to tell us, hey, you know, let's make sure we stay on path. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's great. You know, another thing that uh, you mentioned that I, I like the way you phrase it in the book and kind of frame it and set it up is this idea that there are obviously different leadership styles or ways that we can view leadership. And you, you talk, for example, about transformational and shared servant and civil leadership. Um, but I like it how you, you frame these as perspectives that help to remind us to do certain things versus, you know, this is the only way you should do things. Because sometimes I see people who come into leadership situations and say, well, my, my style is transformational and this is what I do. I just, I inspire and that that's, and then you go about and do your greatness, right? <laughs> you said that very inspirationally. Too. Yes. To, to <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's back to this rigidity issue, right, Ben? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, as a leadership uh, guru, a person would come in and advocate the answer around this. Even I think there's a little bit of this in, in the research itself where, certain academic researchers have adopted kind of a, this is the type of leadership that matters and the research is around that. In practice, I, I can't be purely transactional, right? I can't be purely transformational. Um, you know, what I have to do is kind of have fit for purpose. So understanding kind of the different leadership styles, understanding what my default is too, right? Because people have a natural tendency to default to a, a way they leave. You know, one person tends to, every time that they're, they don't think about it. They end up with this carrot stick approach, right? A, a transactional approach. You know, other people tend to be more transformational in, in nature, right? Right. But um, having kind of a, a palette of things that you can kind of tap into and have some flexibility, they serve different purposes. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, you're going to need different gears as a leader, right? Everybody, I can't go be, you know, Mattis or Bill Gates. Or, you know, as a computer nerd who played music as an undergrad who went in to be an infantry officer in the army, I'd like, you know, we'd be out there in the field. I'm like, everybody's got a six pack, but me, (laughs) you know, these guys look like Rambo and I'm just like an IT weenie over here. I had to skin my leadership challenges different. I couldn't stand up there, you know, my pectoral muscles shining like justice in the dawn, you know, <laughs> inspiring people to charge the field. That that just, sorry, that wasn't a gear I had. <laughs> so, so let me share some research that'll make you feel better. Um, first of all, I'm sure everybody has that same exact career path that you described. It's very common. Very common. You know. <laughs> Nerd to infantry, I think is the natural. Um, so, so your path is, un- your path is unusual, right? But um, Australian uh, Special Forces, some research was done there that I thought was really interesting. They wanted to know why some people succeed through this very rigorous training. You know, Special Forces in Australia are just like Special Forces all over the world. You guys know better than I do, right? Specialized, you know, uh, highly skilled, individually, you know, competent, et cetera, all this, right? The number one predictor that they found in the Australian Special Forces for being successful was whether the person viewed themselves as a team player or not. Wow. Interesting, right? So, you know, of course, none of them were completely out of shape, right? So the capability did come into play. But if they didn't view themselves as a team player, in that context, they weren't going to be, they weren't going to be successful. So for you to go into that, make that shift that you did, Chris, and end up in this other place, there's things that you can tap into other than being, you know, the person with the best six pack. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and this is the message of hope that I want to send to leaders. Like if we learn anything from Hersey Blanchard, we can provide different types of leadership for different situations. And it doesn't need to only be telling, selling, participating, delegating. You know, hey, I, I really, it's a low point on the team. I, I feel like we can have some inspiration here. Well, I'm probably not going to be able to get up and do a 
equivalent of the I have a dream speech or some Churchill something. But, you know, you can stand up there with authenticity and say, guys, I don't know what to say to inspire you right now, but I believe in us. I mean, it's something from the heart. This is the point. There's like gears. No, you know, if you drive a stick shift, you know, well, second gear is best, obviously. Well, no, you, <laughs> you need all the gears, right? You, and when you're going 60 miles an hour, second gear is not the best. But we can dive into these. And you provide some examples and some checklists for people to think about. And that's what I want some people that if you're wondering about buying this book, which we'll put the link in the show notes, he doesn't just leave you like, hey, um, this is a book on boxing. And these are all the moves and have fun with that in the ring. There's actual pragmatic steps and checklists and questions that you can go on that internal soul searching journey so that you can get, I mean, we talked about cognitions and mental models. This is a cognition and mental model of teams itself. If you want to fix the teams that you're on, you got to have a, a lexicon, you know, a, a set of words that, to talk about it with other peoples and a mental model to think about this holistically. Now, one of these things is leadership. And, and I think you provide a great, great view for how to look at leaderships on teams. You know, one of the other things that we, we see emerging from the, from the research is the concept of servant leadership, right? And again, it's not that I am constantly wearing my servant leadership hat, but the, the best example that I can give here, and again, I apologize with another sports example, <laughs> but, you know, do, does the leader view themselves as the quarterback of the team and everybody around them is trying to make sure that they're successful and, and you know, they're the next Tom Brady? Um, or does the leader view themselves as an offensive lineman right, whose job it is to remove obstacles and open up holes so that other people on the team can be successful? And if you're not viewed at least part of the time right, as, as an offensive lineman, as a servant leader, you are not going to see these above and beyond behaviors. You're not going to see the adaptation. You're not going to see people speaking up. Uh, you know, uh, unless you're viewed that way at least some of the time. And again, uh, like we were talking earlier, it's not that I have to be in this role all the time, but it should be part of my repertoire. And in fact, you know, uh, Chris, as you were talking earlier, I was thinking, you know, having the framework and the solution to improving a team it needs to be fit for purpose. So the idea that I can have a team building exercise that will work in all situations it just it, it doesn't make sense, right? One team is struggling because of a lack of capability. Another team is struggling because they don't have shared mental models. You know, a third team is struggling because their communication with people outside the team is not working the way it's supposed to. Why would I expect the same solution to be able to boost the performance in those three situations? So it starts with even just stepping back and looking and saying, you know, where are we strong and where are areas that we have have needs? And then to be able to have some tangible things, some evidence-based actions you can take that match up against the need of your particular team. Yeah. You know, one thing that is really interesting about, you know, having, you know, having a tool set or a, a variety of different leadership techniques that you might use or different roles or even allowing for there to be some shared leadership in a team is that it implies that if you are the formal authority, if you are the, the manager, the leader of the team in formal ways, uh, you have to have, it seems, some humility, and you have to be able to kind of give up that that control that that seems to be kind of part of uh, many people's mental model of what it means to be a leader. Sometimes, yeah, and so unfortunately, some people equate creating an environment where people can speak up, right, where where it's okay to have a point of view, as abdicating responsibility. Mm. Right? That's how some people view it. Again. It's incorrect judgment, but you can see how they get there, right? And there's no reason why you can't be participative without abdicating responsibility. And there's times when you do need to be tough as a leader and you have to make tough decisions and you can do that respectfully. You know, an example of this is, you know, I'm giving it, I was giving advice to a team recently and, and the a leader recently. And the conclusion after thinking through all of this is that his number two person on the team the, the business and the position had outgrown him. And as a result, he was floundering. He was making the rest of the team miserable. He was personally unhappy. This guy, number the number two guy, was personally unhappy. And for this leader to be successful, they had to change people on the team, right? So that's a tough decision. 
but how you go about making that decision, right? And how you how you first take steps to try and develop them, et cetera, how you engage the team and what you do in the aftermath. You know, this isn't um, you know, this isn't being a, a tyrant, right? But it's also okay to be able to create a participant environment without giving up uh, all responsibility. Yeah, yeah, I know that's very well said. And I think that maybe kind of moves us a little bit towards thinking about and we can talk about some of the implications for the, the research that you talk about in your book for leaders and, and uh, team members and for organizations. Um, but first, you know, one thing I'm curious about, because, you know, in addition to writing this great book with Eduardo Salas, you know, you obviously have consulted with many different organizations and teams over the years. I'm just curious, you know, what are some of the best and worst teams you've ever worked with as a consultant? Just throwing a curveball at you because I think it's yeah. an interesting well, thing that you've um, done. <laughs> so you know we, we we've done um, some work with NASA over the years. Hmm. Um, you know, one thing that that we know is they have a shared sense of purpose. You know, they're trying to get people to Mars. Yeah, they're trying to get people to the to the moon. So some of the teams that we've worked with there, obviously, you know, would fall into the high you know performing team category. Um. You know, I think one of the well-kept secrets in this country, you both have a military background. I think one of the well-kept secrets is leaders in the military at senior levels are every bit as good as the leaders I see in the C-suite in corporations. Um, in, in part, I think there's an emphasis on leadership and development in the military that, that's great. So, you know, there's a few leadership team, a few military teams that we worked with, you know, just really out, out, outstanding. The teams that we have seen that really struggled um, were teams where the, the leader um, did not create an environment for the team to be able to be open. Mm. I'm thinking of one, you know, I obviously won't say who it is, sure. but I'm thinking of one team where the leader had um, a subtle or sometimes not so subtle way of closing down team members. And the message they conveyed was, um, you, the team members, don't have much to say here. I want you to execute what I'm telling you to do. Right. And over time, we watched the team, you know, in our involvement with them, we watched the team get less and less involved in things. And, you know, try as we may to coach that leader. Sometimes you're not successful in it. And that was a team that that struggled and 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 really failed ultimately in, in the project they were involved in. Yeah. So I think that kind of you know speaks to one of these implications that you talk about in the book for being an effective team leader, which is building that sense of psychological safety. Uh, so I think you know, that's such an important piece. And I think, um, you know, it, it really is is kind of a mini theme throughout the book. You talk about it in a variety of different ways. And, and I agree that the research shows that it's, it's very important. Maybe you could unpack that a little bit in terms of how that operates for an effective team leader. Yeah. So, you know, first of all, let me just say, I think Amy Edmondson from Harvard has done some really good work in this space. Sure. So people who aren't familiar with it, you know, grabbing some of her work, I, I think is great. But, you know, psychological safety is me being able to be myself. And by being myself, it means things like, gee, I don't understand this. Can I raise my hand and say, hey, I don't understand this. I need help. Or I have a different point of view than my leader does or the most seasoned person on the team does. Can I say that out loud? You know? So those are examples of psychological safety. And I think we all know that the best teams aren't great on day one. They become great because they learn and they adapt over time. And if team members aren't comfortable speaking up and acknowledging when they have problems and uh, asking questions and things like that, there's no way that team is going to be able to adjust over time. And the research is interesting. You know, uh, clearly leader behaviors matter a lot, as do peer behaviors. But, you know, leader behaviors, there's a few things that leaders can do that can make a huge difference. I mean, one thing is, as a leader, if I can acknowledge that I don't know something, hmm. it makes it easier for other people to acknowledge they know. Right. If I can talk about things that I'm going to be better at, I need to get better at, and I'm working on it, other people can acknowledge that as well. When someone offers a dissenting point of view as in a team setting and I'm the leader, and I think they're wrong, the key way to respond to that is to be able to thank them for the input, right? And to be able to say, I'm glad you brought that up. And I have a different perspective about this, you know, so, so let's talk about that in some way. I think the other thing that leaders need to do that sometimes you don't read about in the psychological safety literature 
is that they need to establish boundaries. Right? Mm. They need to be clear about negotiables and non-negotiables. So I'll give you a, a, an example of something that we saw in a team not too long ago. So team leader does a good job, brings, brings his team together, asks about you know, problems and challenges that they have, and an issue about the system, the new system they're using has a bug in it. A person brings it up, can't do anything about it. Every meeting, this person brings up the bug in the system. And finally, you know, the leader closes this person down and the rest of the team shuts down, not just about that, but about everything. And the reason that happened is because the leader didn't specify kind of the boundaries. Right? So if the leader were to say, okay, we're all working with this new system. Um, I know it's challenging, but I think in the long run, we're going to end up with, with better work performance because of this. Now, there's a few things that we can't do anything about right now. I've been told, you know, any bug fixes are going to be on hold for the next six months. So when we find those, let's figure out if we can work around them. But it makes no sense for us to spin our wheels on this. On the other hand, the way we're using this function in the system, I'd really like your input on this. And if you have ideas about how we should be communicating with our customers for the use of this, wide open. Now, when that person says during the meeting, hey, um, you know, I think these bugs are really making us crazy here. We've got to do something about it. The leader is in a position to be able to say, you know, as you know, that's one of those things that we agreed was off limits because we can't do anything about it. So let's not spin our wheels there. But I'd be very interested in your take about how we can work around this. Right? So there's another way in which, you know, we, we can build psychological safety. And interestingly, earlier when we talked about role clarity, role clarity plays a huge role in psychological safety. Because if you and I both think we're responsible for something, and you do it, and I see you doing it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be upset about that. Mm -hmm. Or if you and I uh, both think the other person is responsible for this, right? there's going to be role ambiguity and things will drop through the cracks. But when I step up to do something, and because the roles are unclear, I step on your toes and you close me down, I'm done. I'm going to stick just to my little box of what you told me to do. I'm not stepping outside at all. So I think psychological safety is a really big deal. The good news is it doesn't require a personality change on the part of the leader. Right. You know, there's a few key behaviors that can really promote it in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I think all leaders should be kind of exposed to that. Well, I yeah. think it's great. Like when we talk about mental models and cognition, like that idea of role confusion. Hey, no need to get mad here. Let's keep talking. Looks like it was a little bit of role confusion here. No worries. Let's talk about these roles. Great. Let's move on. And you just turn that same conflict around just because you have a mental model and some words to use to describe what's happening. Yeah. And, you know, during conflict, we can approach it multiple ways, right? So when we have that conflict, is this, let me convince you why I need to be in charge of this and my solution is the best solution, right? So, you know, I'm from New York and, and I see a lot of that kind of, let me push my idea, right? It's part of our New York culture around this. Um, and then I'll go to a meeting in the Midwest where there tends to be a little bit nicer culture. And, and when something like that happens, people often don't speak up, right? Until we get in the hallway. And then people are talking about, can you believe, you know, what Mary did there? Oh, I mean, my gosh, you know? right. But the, the, the best teams um, and research on conflict shows in, engage in, in collaborative conflict, right? So having that language, Chris, that you alluded to, that allows us have collaborative conflict. And collaborative conflict, if I cut through all of it, it's, it's not about uh, who's right, it's about what's right. And having a language to reframe it so we can talk about what's right and what we need to go forward, regardless of how things have been, regardless of how we got to where we are, like how, what do, what's best here? May the best idea win. That's a healthy place to be. Right, right. Those are some great tips, I think, for, for any leader who's trying to make their team more effective. And there's a number of other really great ones in the book. Uh, you know, what, let's turn our attention now maybe to uh, how can you as an individual say you're, you don't have the formal authority, you're not in charge of the team, but what can you do to be a good teammate if you're in that situation? Yeah. So it, it's, it's funny, at a very fundamental level, it starts with living up to commitments. We know trust is important. Um, we know trust gets formed through a couple of judgments. You know, one judgment is whether I believe you're, you have the ability to deliver on what you say. And the second is, do I think your kind of your, your values and your integrity are good? And particularly when a team gets formed, I don't know you, right? So until this point, I'm, I have some assumptions about you, maybe based on other people that did your type of work previously. 
So one fundamental way of being um, a good team member is to live up to commitments. And one good way to live up to commitments is not to make commitments to things that you can't control. Right? I'd rather a team member or a team leader say, you know, that's interesting. My commitment to you is I'm going to research this and get back to you and let you know what's feasible. Rather than saying, I will take care of that if it's something that's completely out there, out of their area of control. So that's one thing. Fundamental. Every, you know, any team that you're on, I think it can start with being careful about the commitments you announce and living up to the ones that you do. The second is, you know, good team members demonstrate backup behavior. And we fill in for one another. You know, any of us that have been on teams for a while know there's like someone on the team who's always willing to help out. And so to be a good team member is to, is to ask, can I help? Mm-hmm. Now, once we have really good shared mental models, sometimes that help can happen without even talking about it. You know, I watched a, a restaurant crew, you know, in a kitchen where they were just taking care of each other's plates without even saying anything. They had this kind of, oh, your sauce is smeared badly on the plate. And you don't notice it. They reach over and they take their napkin and they clear it before it gets delivered, right? But until we get there, a, a what good team members do is they, you know, they speak up and say, hey, can I help you in some way? And then... A third one that comes to mind is um, who are you representing when you're interacting with people outside the team? Look, I understand we need to do some self-promotion. I'm, I'm not against that. Hey, I have a book out. Did you hear about that? It's really good. <laughs> um, you know, so, so self-promotion is fine. But if as a team member, the only thing I talk about when I'm outside the team is me, and I don't talk about my team, and I'm not trying to garner resources for my team, A, it doesn't help my team, and B, it's not great for building my reputation within the team. So those are a few, you know, fundamental things, you know, along with caring more about what is right than, than who is right. Excellent. Excellent advice there. Now, if you kind of go up the organizational chart, so to speak, and, you know, if you're talking to a senior leadership team uh, and in terms of what they can do as an organization or as senior leaders themselves, uh, what are some things maybe they could do a little differently to encourage good teams and good teamwork within their organizations? Yeah, we do, we do a lot of work with senior leadership teams. Um, and if you think about them, first of all, uh, they, they don't work shoulder to shoulder every day. They're not like a manufacturing team. By definition, they're diverse because they represent different functions or regions or parts of the business. Right. Which means they speak different language to begin with. You talk finance and I talk marketing language, right? So it, it's not easy for them. Let me first start with that. All senior leadership teams struggle a little bit um, but sometimes they have the false impression that what they're doing goes unseen. Hmm. It's happening behind closed doors. It's on the 32nd floor. Right. You know, it's only in our boardroom. And there's some really interesting research that comes out of the Netherlands that, that really dispels that. You know, in that particular study, they looked at 60 plus senior leadership teams. And what they found is in senior leadership teams where there's collaborative behavior, backup behavior. In other words, they are working well together. Those organizations show higher engagement levels of employees and they, they show higher retention levels of employees. Think about that, right? Wow. You know, what goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas, but what goes on in the senior leadership team meeting doesn't stay there. <laughs> it somehow permeates through the organization in some way. So the first piece of advice I give to senior leaders is first check yourselves, right? I mean, first make sure that your team is working well together. Occasionally do debriefs where you talk about how you're working together as a team and where there have been disconnects in some ways. Because if you don't have your own house in order, it's hard to be able to send the cult cultural norms. The second thing is I ask them, so, so what, do you, what do you communicate about in the organization? Reflect on the kind of the, the written and the verbal and the town halls and the things that you've done. And when you tell stories that involve success, is it always Mookie Betch made an amazing catch on his own? But when right. you tell the stories, do you talk about how Jackie Bradley was also calling out the distance to the fence in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. If your stories are always about individual excellence, the hero who overcame all odds, right? the message you're sending in the organization is lone wolves are what we need here. And in fact, that's probably not the case. So make sure that you're telling stories that also illustrate collaboration and teamwork, particularly across functional boundaries in some ways. And then the third thing is, you know, insist on a review of the policies and practices and systems in the organization. One thing that's definitely true is if you show me who is being promoted in your organization, I can tell you whether you are building a culture of collaboration or not. Right. 
the last 20 promotions, these are all individual selfish people. But they were generating revenue. Everybody hated them. They stepped on other people to get to the top. What's the message you're sending? So what are your promotion practices? And, and um, you know, what are your onboarding practices? Is there discussion about teamwork and collaborative norms in the organization? You talked about onboarding earlier here. Um, and then I think this is true both for direct line managers as well as senior managers. Let's think about who's coming into our organization, both in terms of making sure we select the right people, but also the message that we send. So I've watched organizations where on the front end, the interview process really focused on technical stuff. You know, mm -hmm. can you program in Python? Can you give me an example of that? You know, can you show me how you can fix this technical issue? But if they don't talk about teamwork and collaboration and working with one another, the message that we're sending to that person we're hiring is all that matters here is technical expertise, right? And that collaborative behavior. And you also end up with a deficit of people who have what we would refer to as collective orientation, right? Mm -hmm. Who tend to think team first. So, you know, if we borrow from the interview literature, and think about the use of behavioral event interviews or things like that, we should be asking questions like, so tell me about a time when you were on a team and that team struggled. What did you do? What did you think? How did you handle this? What happened? And one of the telltale signs is when you talk about these multiple team experiences, when the, the story that the person gives is always, I knew what to do, but these idiots didn't do it. <laughs> you found somebody who probably has toxic traits that are, that are going to be a problem, right? Yeah. Um, so last thing I'll say here is you just, we, we can't tolerate toxic behavior. Um, you know, we did work with a retail organization and I give senior leadership credit where they introduced a, um, a certification program that, that included the fact that their salespeople would participate in collaborative behaviors like handling returns, backing up one another, et cetera. And when they introduced this, this program, it started working really well. And one of the most experienced high revenue generating salespeople in the organization said, I shouldn't have to do this. I've been doing this work for 20 years. I bring in all this money. I shouldn't have to do this stuff. And to senior leadership's credit, what they said to him was, um, we, we, we love the work that you do. We're confident that you can pass the certification process. <laughs> um, we will help make sure that you understand the guidelines on that. But if you choose not to play, thank you, uh, you're gone. And that story made its way through the organization. Like we're committed to collaborative behavior. So that's the other thing. It's like you think about these stories and these examples that all of a sudden get spread through the organization. Are they about working together, crossing functional boundaries, you know, being a team player, or are they always about the hero? That's excellent. That's excellent. Uh, so you know, we've covered so much ground here, and I think you provide such a such great insights. And certainly, there's more in the book. Uh, you know, one thing that we're curious too is, you know, right now we're recording this in the midst of COVID and all the related shenanigans with that. Um, are, any advice for teams in this particular moment, uh, working more distributively and so forth? Yeah. So. Um... First, let's acknowledge that it's a difficult time for everybody. Yeah. Right? Um, the good news, incidentally, is I'm actually seeing some more humanizing behavior as we have our cameras open and we see the families and places where people work in the homes, which, which is great. But from a team perspective, distance creates a challenge, right? When we're co-located, there's more natural ways for us to be able to communicate informally, to share our point of view, to build shared mental models. When we are working remotely, there's less opportunities for that to happen naturally. So I think the best way of building team effectiveness is through team debriefs. This is true whether you're co-located or not. Right? Um, Chris Sarasoli and I uh, published a meta-analysis that showed that teams that debrief systematically over time outperform other teams by almost 25%. Simple, it's not expensive, teams should be doing it. But if you think about it, in remote settings, that becomes even more important we're not getting the day-to-day, -day, the daily interaction to enable us to kind of sustain a shared mental model and to make adjustments. So one thing is conduct remote debriefs and be sure that when you do them, you're not just talking about task work. Right? Did we get progress on this item in the project, but also talk about teamwork. Hey, is there anybody that should have been notified sooner about this? Is there any other people we need to bring in to engage in this to make sure we have the right talent? You know, are we clear how the priorities have changed recently, right? So that, that's one thing, definitely that. The second is we have to be, we talked about role clarity a good bit, uh, you know, during, during this podcast. 
But in this case, I think it becomes even more important that we have clarity about decision-making authority, right? Because what happens is, is that I'm now working from home and I'm not in the same room with my boss and I can't check with them easily. And I certainly don't want to be having to send them a note every single time. So where is their local discretion? Individually, I can run with this. And what are things that we need to bring back to the leader or bring back to the team in some ways? And I think teams that are doing well in this, in this environment currently have had some conversations about that and a little greater clarity, which gives me autonomy when I need it, but also means I'm not stepping on, stepping on landmines inappropriately. Uh, the other thing is about response time, right? So research shows that faster response time is better, right? But more importantly than speed of response time is a shared understanding about response time. So it's great if we can all be responding within an hour, but if that's a false expectation, let's not have that. If you, Ben, if you think 48 hours is an appropriate response time, and I think four hours is, and I'm <laughs> sending you stuff and you're not responding, man, I am just, I'm burning up, yep. right? So we need to have an understanding in these kind of remote teams, um, you know, how, what, what's an appropriate response time on this? That's excellent. And if you're forming a team, right? If you're forming a team, one of the first inclinations that people will do with remote teams when they're forming them is to want to start with personal stuff. Okay, let's go around the room and tell us, you know, what your hobbies are and if you have any kids and what you're doing in life and what your background is. And I would say don't, don't start there. Starting there emphasizes differences, right? And it emphasizes where there may be, may be fault lines. Oh, Ben's an engineer. I know. I've always had problems with engineers. If instead we start with, hey, let's be clear about what the goal is while we're, while we're formed together. Remember, you asked me about what a team is. Mm -hmm. A team has at least some shared uh, you know, focus. So what is that? Secondly, let's talk about the tasks that need to be done. Let's talk about the roles that need to be filled, et cetera. Once we do that, and that's a common understanding, then it's great to understand like, what we each bring to the table and who we are. But I think a common mistake is to start with, let's get to know each other. And, and that's not great with, with remote teams. And if I could say something, you know, you talked about virtual, but let me also say something about, about COVID, mm -hmm. right? Because we're living in a, in a COVID world and we've been working with healthcare teams in, in this space. And I think there's something that we've seen with them that I think also has implications for others. But you know, they are doing heroic work. It is really difficult. They have to work as a team. And they're being put in a situation where they're having to work in areas that they may not have been fully trained in with people that they may not have been working with previously to tackle problems that they have not had to tackle before. And, and that's not the only place that happens, but it's really evident there. And of course, because of that, their performance at times isn't, isn't what they're accustomed to. And in their case, when that happens, they see patients die. So the natural inclination is to do problem solving. And problem solving is good. We should be doing problems. But if we are only doing problem solving, if we're only looking at what's failing, if we're only looking at where there's mistakes, what happens is the team loses collective efficacy. Hmm. Collective efficacy is not that I believe I can be successful, but it's that I believe our team can be successful. And that's something that drives team effectiveness. So one of the things that we've been encouraging them to do is to, in addition to their problem solving, also take a look at some of the successes. This patient that we thought was going to die actually lived. What, how do we do that? Why do we, and what can we learn from that that we can extend elsewhere? So it's a dramatic example in the medical world, but the same thinking applies, I think, in corporate settings. If we're focused simply on problem solving and always focusing on mistakes, teams lose collective efficacy. Yeah, you don't have to go to the pub, guys, and have a birthday party. Well, you shouldn't be going really to the pub at this <laughs> point. But, you know, right all days. of that stuff, <laughs> if they we're trying to capture that efficacy, right? And that can just be, I think that's just so well said, just by focusing on the things that are going well in the world of work where you're at, as well as the problem solving stuff. That's right. I mean, you'll notice a recurring theme is that almost all the things I'm talking about is about how work gets done, right? So it's, it's not simply, you know, kind of like, do I feel good in some ways? And one of the myths about that we see a lot is, man, if we can only get our team to, to like each other, you know, if only... You know, if only we got along, then everything would be great. And, and, and Google even hypothesized that that might be one of the predictors. And in their big study of teams, they found that wasn't a factor at all. 
psychological safety was number one for them, which is which is kind of interesting. So, you know, it, it's it's about how work gets done, not necessarily, you know, Chris, do I know your hobbies or not? And, and so, you know, it's okay to do, it's okay to do the picnic or the, the birthday parties post COVID, you know, those <laughs> things. I just want people to have realistic expectations about what they'll accomplish, right? And they help a little bit, maybe from some camaraderie, but it's not going to resolve a role clarity problem, a lack of shared mental models, insufficient talent on the team, any of those sorts of things. That's right. You know, I have not seen any research support that's for the idea that just getting all your employees together and doing trust falls all day is going to really do much for your teams. So <laughs> no, outward bound. I mean, look, it, it, as long as you realize this is about the team having, and I was going to say a fun experience, fun for the people who are able to climb really well, not so much right. fun for the rest of us. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, it might be a fun experience and, and people you know might enjoy the day. But just don't expect that that will, will take on the problems that we often see associated with the, with the seven Cs. Right? Excellent. Excellent. You know, Scott, this has just been a fantastic conversation and just a wealth of information here. Uh, where else can people find out more about you and what you're up to on the web? Yeah, so a couple of places. Um, for the book itself, if people go to uh, www.teamsthatwork.com, There'll be some background information about the book and, and a little bit about Ed and, and myself. Um, my company website is groupoe.com. Uh, so people can certainly find me there. And, you know, I am on LinkedIn and Twitter. Nice. Uh, as is, uh, you know, uh, much of the world. So that's another place that people can uh, can find out more about some of the things we're working on. Outstanding. Outstanding. And of course, we'll put all of those links in the show notes so people can easily ex uh, access those. Uh, so anything else that you want to share about teams or anything about, uh, um, industrial organizational psychology or the world of work at large? Yeah. So maybe two things, uh, one in terms of my pitch, my pitch is to, to people, please do more team debriefs. Mm. They're easy. They're, they're not expensive. Um, and, and they don't have to be elaborate and, and we shouldn't do them just after there's been a big failure in the organization. Cause otherwise everyone thinks, this big hot wash after action review is to, to place blame for people. Get in the habit of periodically huddling up, pausing, reflecting on what we're doing, what's gone well, what hasn't gone well. You know, what, pick one or two things that we could do differently and get back to work. And if you do that on an ongoing cycle as a team leader, uh, you will see benefits in your team. So that's the first thing. Um, second thing is just, I say, uh, you know, um, I am fortunate that I chose to be an IO psychologist. It's not like anybody when they're four years old and they say, what do you want to be when you grow up? They don't say, I want to be an IO psychologist. <laughs> they should. Right? Right? They should, of course. I mean, astronaut, fireman. No, no, IO psychologist, damn it. Um, but but I, 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 for me, it's really a great place to work. And it's awesome to be able to be in a field where we're dealing with really interesting challenges with people at work. And remember, people spend at least half their waking hours of their life at work be able to figure out how they can have better experiences and how businesses can be more successful. I, I'm an advocate for IO psychology. Outstanding. Well, you know, our guest today has been Scott Tannenbaum, and we talked all about teams. We talked about his book, Teams That Work. And, you know, I just want to thank you, Scott, for being part of the Indigo podcast. Oh, it was my pleasure. Appreciate the invitation. Thanks for listening to the Indigo podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.